Hey there, I'm Adam Rissman, and welcome to Inside Intercom. Throughout the spring, we've published a string of episodes that we've called The Growth Series. In a nutshell, we've been picking the minds of practitioners at some of this generation's fastest growing and most successful software companies. We've heard from current and former leaders at places like Postmates, Slack, Uber, Duolingo, Eventbrite, and more. Hopefully along the way, we've exposed some frameworks and philosophies that can be applied back to growing your own business, too. Well, of course, we'll continue to explore all aspects of growth on this show, be it through conversations around sales, marketing, or product challenges. This marks the final official installment of our series. And closing things out with me this week is Sean Ellis, CEO and co-founder of Growth Hackers, which encompasses software, an online community, and even an annual conference. Sean's played a key role in helping companies like LogMeIn, Eventbrite, and Dropbox get a handle on growth. In fact, he was Drew Houston's very first marketing hire. More recently, he founded and sold the customer insights company Qualaroo and co-wrote Hacking Growth to explore how many of today's tech giants got to their current heights. Most closely associated with Sean, though, is the oft-debated subject of growth hacking. In our chat, he sets the record straight on how he defines the phrase. My definition of it is trying to understand everything that you can do to effectively drive growth in the business and just having a disciplined approach to do those things in an experimental way where you're using data to to double down on the things that actually work. We also walk through the lessons that stick with him most from his previous growth stops. What I found is that every company that I've worked with, the fastest or the most important growth lever in each of those businesses is just pure natural word of mouth. And why he believes having a North Star metric is a key to sustainable growth. You get a lot more shared mission cross-functionally, people pulling in the same direction, which is hugely beneficial to creating a company that grows over time. If you enjoy my chat with Sean, we've published more than 100 Inside Intercom interviews, and you can find them all on iTunes, Spotify, or really anywhere else you go for podcasts these days. Now, let's cut to the chase and hop into my conversation with growth hacker Sean Ellis. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Sean, welcome to Inside Intercom. It's great to finally have you on. Thank you. It's uh, it's really good to be on. I've been listening for a while, and it's uh, really good interviews. So so excited to be on. Cool. Well, hopefully, we can live up to your your expectations. Then, just to get us started, what were the notable twists and turns in your career that led you to starting Growth Hackers today? And and what's your mission there? What are you trying to accomplish? Oh yeah. So I mean, I I think I could probably answer that first one pretty long, but. I guess a good starting point is just how I got into marketing in the first place, online marketing in particular. I actually started in 1996 in online marketing and sort of stumbled into it because I had invested in a friend's company, which was an online game company, and joined him in a sales role initially, and there wasn't anybody really using the product, and I was trying to sell advertising against a non-existent user base. So uh-huh. temporarily stepped in to, to fill the, the marketing role. And um, you know, long story, fast forward, we actually became a, a top 10 company in the world, the number one online gaming site, and uh, did, some, did some cool stuff, like probably pushed the envelope further than any other company at the time around what we did with analytics, uh, pioneered kind of an embeddable widget, and everything was very, very test-driven. And mm-hmm. at a time when others weren't doing that, it was a huge advantage. You know, now that's that's just kind of like table stakes. But um, yeah, that that kind of served me well through through the career and taking me ultimately to Growth Hackers today, where you know I'm just 
it's it's more of a passion project, and it's been a pra- passion project. We're, we are VC backed, which um, doesn't always uh, jibe with a passion project, <laughs> but you know, it's it's about trying to help people more effectively grow their businesses, and you know, in particular, people who have businesses that are worthy of growth. So they have product market fit, and I think that there's a lot of Probably, I don't know if I want to say misinformation or misunderstanding, but trying to actually fill that gap out there where where people historically haven't really known that well how to approach it and trying to help as much as possible people approach it correctly. You mentioned about the misinformation that's out there. And so growth hacking as a term, well, the trade itself and a lot of the tools have existed for far beyond 2010. I think that's roughly when, when I guess you coined the term. Right. A lot of alternate definitions have sprung up. There's, I think if you pulled a room full of 15 people, you might get 10 answers into what they think growth hacking is. So I just you, want to you ask you. You might even get 16 answers. <laughs> uh, but I mean, what does the phrase represent for you today? And then it, where do you put the bumpers in the lane? What does it not represent? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's good to maybe start sort of the spirit of why I even came up with it and then what I meant by it and and sort of how it's evolved. So mm-hmm. originally I, I came up with the, the phrase really because I thought, startups had no choice but to be super growth focused. And it was, you know, not long after I'd left Dropbox and I had received a ton of resumes from people who were essentially bringing kind of a traditional marketing approach to what they were hoping to go into Dropbox and and execute. And so I just knew from my own experience that in the early days of a business, you have to be very growth focused and all about acquiring, converting, retaining, but ultimately getting as many people to experience a product as possible. And you couldn't really invest a lot in awareness building and, you know, kind of the, some of the branding stuff that the marketers do that might be a little harder to, to connect into the, the value. So for me, I guess that that's how I would have defined it or would define it now is just this singular focus on growth and growth through rapid experimentation. But unlike what marketers have done that have been pretty experimental for a long time, instead of just doing it around marketing, really across the full customer journey, particularly in product where I think mm-hmm. you probably have more growth levers than than even in marketing, you have more effective, sustainable growth levers, particularly around onboarding. And then- yep, exactly. Yeah, and I think probably like a, another kind of angle to it would be just it's analysis driven grit is what I've seen as, as being really effective for growing a business. So it still takes that, that X factor. And that's, that's probably my probably biggest frustration with, with growth hackers and, and thinking I could train a lot of people around growth is mm-hmm. that there's this X factor of just like, I'm going to figure out what the issues are that are holding back growth and, and attack those issues. And, and the truth is that there's a lot of people that just aren't willing to do the hard work that it takes to effectively grow something. So it's not just not just grit and hard work, because that by itself, directed in the wrong areas, probably isn't going to make much impact. But it's you know, analyzing to really understand the situation and then just laser focus, working really hard to to drive growth in the parts of the business where it matters. It makes total sense. I mean, do you think that a lot of people, when it comes to that, that high-level discussion, this argument about what it is and what it isn't, that they get stuck on rather than looking at it as sort of like hacking as this this verb of it basically trying to find a way to quickly connect users to value like you said they get stuck on the, on the hacks part of it and that's where a lot of the sort of frustration lies yeah i mean i, I really think the miss miss kind of interpretation of it are all over the board some people say hey you're just talking about marketing the way marketing is supposed to be done which is actually a pretty good argument i i, w- I would agree probably to some <laughs> degree with that there are definitely 
I mean, like, you know, to me, the kind of like blue haired kind of like they've got to be this like big hacker personality sort of thing where there's kind of a box of magic tricks that they're running to drive the, the silver bullets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that's definitely way off and hopefully I've done a pretty good job along with other people to break that kind of description down. And then I think, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword with Andrew Chen embracing the term pretty early on. Mm-hmm. I think Andrew enters one of the people I respect most in growth. I know you interviewed him just recently. Yeah. I, I don't think anybody would have even noticed the term if he didn't kind of pick it up, but he, he put a definition on there that's probably a little different than what I was pushing, where he really emphasized the kind of engineering angle of growth hacking. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's potentially a really important part of it, but I don't think I don't think it's a requirement. I don't I don't think you need to be an engineer to be able to be an effective growth hacker. Yeah, when you when you read a headline that says uh, gr- growth hacker is the new VP of marketing, it's going to catch a lot of people's attention. That's for sure. Well, especially from from him, where he had this mm-hmm. great respected following. That's it got the term on the on the map, and he he probably deserves as much credit and ability to define it because again, it wouldn't have been noticed. But my definition of it is is really trying to understand everything that you can do to effectively drive growth in the business and just having a disciplined approach to do those things in an experimental way where you're using data to, to double down on the things that actually work. It's it's timely that you mentioned Andrew there because one of the places that I, I believe the two of you have crossed paths uh, long ago was at Dropbox, where I believe you were the very first marketer that Drew hired. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was We're talking when they were still in private beta, and then I started the week when it came out of private beta. Wow. Wow. So put us in the conference room in those days. I mean, there's a lot of different things that you could attack. Where did you start? Where did you find your early success there? Yeah. So I think probably the best thing that I had good alignment with Drew on was the end goal. And the end goal was not just growth, but actually trying to trying to take advantage of the fact that, you know, it's less than 10 people it's all engineers. There's not really a culture in the business yet. And being able to focus on how do we actually create a culture of growth and experimentation? So that was actually in my contract. It was a six-month interim wow. exec- executive role where one of our key objectives was to create a culture of growth and experimentation. So I think that's that's kind of the starting point. And then probably the second piece for me was <laughs> making sure that I, you know, I saw that Dropbox was something special, just even though it was just coming out of, of beta, they they had done a really good job of, of building up the, the usage during the private beta. And so I think a lot of it for me was to make sure that I understood what was going on, both from a, from a data perspective and also a, a qualitative sort of survey driven perspective so that I didn't break it. You know, I, I think right. that's, that's <laughs> no the, pressure. Yeah, exactly. I just didn't, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to just jump in there and start doing stuff and then end up, uh, end up shutting down something that was working. So um, but but we were able. I think within within just a couple of weeks, we had a pretty good handle on what was what was driving growth, what was working, and then and, you know, and then working to amplify those things. That's interesting that you mentioned the culture of growth and experimentation actually being in in your your paperwork when you came on board. To drive that, I'm sure you needed to highlight some some early wins. So, what were a couple of those first aha moments? And I think just as importantly, how how did you? disseminate that information and communicate it to get people on board with this approach? Yeah. So I think probably, you know, again, a lot of it was just getting my head around what was going on. And then a lot of the early experimentation that we were doing was, was around the onboarding. So I think what's interesting with Dropbox is that there's just so many paths into that product. So the homepage was 
was actually just kind of a minor path. A lot of the people who were discovering Dropbox were discovering it through a file share or being invited to a, a collaboration folder, you know, and, and then just you know, pure word of mouth was the biggest driver overall of anything. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think each of those paths really trying to understand what the intent of the user was and then little experiments that work to reduce friction, increase desire and, you know, bring them to the experience that delivered on, on their intent. And so lots of little experiments there, but I had to work pretty closely with Drew to push those experiments through. Fortunately, the, I think the success rate early on when you've, you know, they'd never run a test before I was there. So wow. the success rate's pretty easy at that point because, you, you know, as long as I took the time to understand what was going on, you know that you know, each part of the business has not yet been optimized. So the chances of running a winning test are pretty high, especially if it was based on, on research and figuring out why people were giving up at a particular spot. So Drew had to probably help me push through the first, I, w- I would say, you know, three or four tests. I had to work pretty closely with him. And then it, was, it wasn't very long before a lot of the tests were actually being conceptualized by the by the engineers, implemented by the engineers, and you know, we, we started moving toward that culture of, of growth and experimentation pretty quickly. It, it sounds like you had a lot of successes there. I'm curious, is there anything that maybe didn't work out during that period that really came to inform the work you would do down the line, whether it be at, say, Qualaroo or, or any of the other companies you've had a chance to work with in the decade since? That was kind of interesting in the in the time when I got to Dropbox, you know, in between the time when I started left LogMeIn and started at Dropbox. I had done an interim VP marketing role at Zobni. In fact, that's mm-hmm. that's how I got introduced to Dropbox. The Zobni founder was uh, in the same fraternity as Drew at MIT. And so I came in through that recommendation. But what was cool at Zobni was, you know, in, in focusing on bringing that product to market, I had I had really documented what I thought was the right approach of bringing a company to market. And so I had just really built out the playbooks and, and took a lot of time to not just do stuff, but to really document it and lay out kind of a game plan of mm-hmm. what do I need to learn? How do I get people on board? How do I actually, you know, kind of the tracking side, being able to have a really good, you know, at the time you didn't have KISS metrics or Mixpanel or Amplitude or any of the kind of mm-hmm. tracking systems. So being able to have a really good spec around what a good uh, user-based tracking system would look like and then all of the templates for the surveys that that helped me uncover the information that I needed. So I could be really efficient when I went by the time I got into Dropbox. So I think I had already, you know, that was it was the the fourth company that I was taking to market. And so a lot of the wow. a lot of the issues that I had in earlier companies, I, I had kind of worked through at that point. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. 
The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. One thing that I believe is a huge growth lever for for Dropbox and Log Me In, as you mentioned as well, is freemium model. Yeah. And I remember listening to another discussion with you somewhere where you mentioned that at Qualaroo, you thought that would have similar impact and it, and it just didn't. So I'd love to learn more about that experience and maybe what our listeners need to know or consider before they try a freemium model for growth or go down that path. Sure. In fact, um, it's, it's kind of interesting when we talk about like, failed experiments or big failed experiments or big, you know, potentially mistakes, I would, I would say kind of our, our Qualaroo freemium attempt would be among my biggest. We actually, you know, if you, you kind of think of a cost of experiment, I actually convinced my investors to let me buy the business that became Qualaroo, which was a, a little product that was inside of Kissmetrics at the time. And it was based on this premise that, gosh, they just don't understand the freemium model. And if, if we do it correctly, we'll be able to blow this product up. So, you know, big investment later, I implemented everything the way that I thought would be needed to be successful. And it was a total failure. <laughs> it, uh, you know, ultimately it. It's only a failure if you don't learn though. <laughs> exactly. And so what, what happened was that we, the, the big lesson was that we, we realized that people were much less price sensitive around the product once they realized that they needed the product. And so instead of actually making it free and trying to grow market with free, we, we learned that lack of price sensitivity took mm-hmm. us the other direction. We, we killed the free product and actually increased the price quite a bit on the premium product and uh, grew MRR you know, many, many fold. And, and most of that was through not really expanding the customer base that much, but just significantly expanding the average MRR per customer. That's really interesting. So it led into almost a new test for the the upper bounds of your pricing then? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, okay, if it's if it's if the price sensitivity isn't there, let's see how much we can push it. And so we we increased price multiple times and grandfathered old people in. And so we we did it in the right way, but we we were able to uh, drive significant growth in in overall. Uh, recurring revenue just by increasing the amount of revenue we're getting per customer. Many of our listeners are at companies that are, are going to be significantly smaller than a lot of the places that you have have been, um, at least the names that we've talked about, Dropbox, LogMeIn, um, Eventbrite, we haven't had a chance to get into because there's so much we could cover today, but uh, it's another one. But they they have found product market fit and are beginning to meaningfully invest in growth. And I know one thing that you advocate for at this stage is what you call the North Star metric. So yeah. Can you define that for us and explain why that's such an important cog for meaningful growth? Yeah, in fact, I'm, I'm going to even take a step back from that and just you know talk about one the you know you you just touched on it that that these are companies that probably have product market fit. Yeah, I just want to highlight the importance of product market fit because I think it plays directly into this. That uh-huh. I think what what you see over and over again is that you can take some 
otherwise very successful growth and marketing people and you put them in a situation where they don't have product market fit and they're not going to be successful. That, that ultimately, in order to drive sustainable growth, you need to have a product that people over time get value from and keep using because it's a valuable experience. And so the North Star metric is really about trying to quantify that product market fit in a way that you, you, you know, product market fit is based on this, this benefit. And so how much benefit am I delivering over time to a growing user base? And if you're focused on expanding the benefit or the value that you're delivering, you're going to be able to retain users. And not only that, but what I've, what I've found is every company that I've worked with, the fastest or the most important growth lever in each of those businesses is just pure natural word of mouth. And so mm-hmm. by focusing on one, delivering people to a valuable experience, and then two, measuring value across the customer base over time, you're looking at the thing that's going to drive sustainable growth. And so the North Star metric is really trying to quantify that value over time. And if you're, if everything you're doing is, is about trying to expand that, you'll, you'll be in good shape long-term and, and driving growth in the business. So what are some tangible examples, maybe good and, and bad that you've seen either with, with companies you've worked with or consulted with or just observed? Sure. Yeah. So I, I think kind of a couple of the companies that, that are pretty well-known companies or very well-known. So like Airbnb, <laughs> Knights Booked. So essentially, if you think again, the value and we can kind of work from what what's not a good one for for Airbnb. So if we just said app installs, if you were trying to optimize everything around app installs for Airbnb, you could potentially be up and to the right and and look like you're killing it. But ultimately, if those people are not booking a room on Airbnb, one, you're not making any money, and two, they're not getting any value to where they actually going to tell their friends where they're going to come back and use it more. And so it's that, that night book that ultimately creates value, not only for the guests, but also for the host. And mm-hmm. so that's sort of the, the value creating moment. For something like, like Facebook, um, I, I think a, an easier proxy for value is just daily active users. And so that's their North Star metric, but it's having more users on the platform that ultimately create more content for people to actually benefit from and create more viewers of other people's content to interact and engage with. And so it creates that that loop back and forth where people are getting value from that system. But it's I think just looking at daily active users is probably a good proxy for the value that's being created on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, so you're almost quantifying the idea that if, if the Facebook or Airbnb, if Airbnb didn't exist, what would people be most disappointed that they aren't able to do? And it's be able to book that room in a neighborhood that they wouldn't otherwise have access to because hotels are too expensive. And that's that's where they're finding the value. Exactly. And, and then the benefit that you have by having that kind of quantified value is that now you have each person in the company kind of, and, and even each team in the company can start to actually look at what is their role in expanding that value. So, you know, a marketing team might be bringing people, you know, new people into the front door. The product team might be helping to activate and retain people. A support team might be helping to retain people. And so people start to actually understand what is their role in expanding the North Star metric. And you get a lot more uh, shared mission, cross-functionally, uh, people pulling in the same direction, which is, which is hugely beneficial to creating a company that, uh, that grows over time. Now, now I don't want anyone to maybe misinterpret that's listening exactly what you're saying. This is different than the one metric that matters approach, correct? It is. And I, and I think there's a, a, a ton of kind of misunderstanding around the one metric that matters. I, in fact, for a long time, I misunderstood it and, and didn't 
didn't like it because I, I would think to myself, this, there's not just one metric that matters. There's a lot of metrics that matter. And so I think if, if they had called it the one metric that matters right now, that would probably probably kind of be a better a better phrase it all comes for down that. to branding <laughs> yeah and and I think that's a really sound concept it's essentially saying what's that one best opportunity to improve growth or you know or, or just improve the overall success of the business right now what's that one metric that we should be focused on improving and I think that's that's actually a really good focusing driver that creates a lot of value in a business and I think that's the, the angle where they were coming from so I don't think the North Star metric is necessarily the same thing. I actually think the North Star metric is is kind of a persistent overall success metric. And then for driving that North Star metric, there might be a one metric that matters right now more than any other. And so that's that's where the kind of two concepts come together. Right. So maybe you're focusing on your onboarding and getting people activated, or maybe you're trying to optimize the ways that you bring your users that are slipping away back in, but all that might play into that, that North Star metric. Right. Yeah. And just a, a quick example, when I was at Log Me In, you know, we, we were trying to grow remote control sessions would kind of be our North Star metric. How many remote control sessions across our entire user base? But what we were finding is that about 95% of new signups never had a single remote control session. So it wasn't until basically engineering product and marketing pulled together to focus on the sign-up to usage rate and, and really drove a bunch of experimentation. And it took months to do it, but over the course of three or four months, we drove a ton of improvement in the sign-up to usage rate, which is at the point where we really hockey stick the business that you know mm-hmm. once once we had we were able to get about a thousand percent improvement in the sign up to usage rate. And then that's, I, you know, suddenly there's so much interdependency between each of the levers that moves your North Star metrics. So suddenly, if they get a great first experience, retention improved a ton, revenue improved a ton, referral improved a ton. And then on the marketing side, I was able to acquire way more people once our efficiency in converting them meant I had a pretty fast payback on any dollars I spent to acquire people. That's really interesting. So you almost sort of course corrected from one metric to to another. What was the the process that that led you to do that, or was it just general research coming to you with, <laughs> with observations, or how, how how did you turn the ship around like that? So I think that the the main process was, and this is kind of where I was saying that sort of analysis driven grit is the the missing component for I think most companies in the growth teams or growth person or whoever whoever's focusing on and, and responsible for driving growth is that. It's about figuring out what is that thing that's really holding you back. And so at that point, we were organized in, in kind of the typical silos that companies get organized in. And so I was the vice president of marketing, and I was tasked with spending money to acquire users, get a return on investment. And that, I think that model can work well, but when I have 95% of the people who I drive to a sign-up not use the product, not surprisingly, I, I had a very weak ROI on the dollars I was spending. And so my ability to scale profitable campaigns was was capped at about $10,000 per month and so mm-hmm. my frustration with that I, I essentially I essentially said what the heck is happening here that makes this job so hard and that's where I did the analysis and found we had this massive drop off in the funnel and it was in an area of the business that was outside of my kind of scope of influence or control and so that's when I actually brought the data to the CEO and said we're going to need to fix this if we want this business to be able to scale. 
And to his credit, he actually put a complete freeze on the product development roadmap, wow. took all engineers, all product people, and even on the marketing side said, marketing team, I don't want you developing any new channels. Everybody come together. And so it became this group project to figure out how do we get the sign up to usage rate up? We documented everything and you know, had all these flows built out on the board and just just ran a ton of experiments. And, and that's that's how we drove that improvement. Well, it really, really shows the impact of, of when you actually have all, all hands on deck steering in the same direction. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And, it, and I think that's most companies right now, you've got this big drop off that happens between product and marketing. It's just most product people are long term product roadmap oriented and marketers just can't go deeper than maybe a landing page. And so you've got this this area that essentially just just falls through the, the cracks. And that's that's where there's so much room for improvement in company and the fastest growing companies have, have totally figured out how to how to deal with that area. Sean, it's been a lot of fun catching up today. Thanks so much for uh, lending your insights. Before we go, uh, you released a book last year, Hacking Growth. Give us a 30-second spiel about what your book's about, where our listeners can find it, and then anywhere else they can go to keep up with you as well. Yeah, so the whole idea with Hacking Growth was to provide that kind of definitive guide on what you need to do to effectively drive growth in a business. And so we've really driven it into to actionable steps and kind of for each part of the funnel, but just overall with the process as well. Buy it on Amazon, it's an Audible, and it's actually been translated into... 14 languages. I just got back from from China doing a doing a book tour, and wow. uh, so yeah, it's um, it's all over the place. Great. Well, we will uh, look out for for the book, and uh, we can find you at, at growthhackers.com. Anywhere else? Yeah, probably growthhackers.com. Twitter at Sean Ellis. Link with me on LinkedIn. All of those sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. This has been a lot of fun, Sean. Thanks again for taking the time. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.